Hello, friends and enemies, and welcome to In the Finest Hour, a podcast that focuses on competitive play and giving you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your podcast host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and on my left, I have your good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. Hello. And your evil podcast host, Joshua Death. Bah humbug. Bah humbug indeed. Those are delicious candies. <laughs> How are the two of you doing this gorgeous winter season? Well, I'm less sick than I was last year. Josh? That's a plus. I'm not the sick one in my house. Everyone else is. Ooh, visited <laughs> by Papa Nurgle, huh? He has hit me hard. I was. Uh, I think he's mad because I stopped playing Nurgle there for a while, and he's trying to remind me why. <laughs> You're not the only one who's given up on Nurgle post-chapter approved here, but that's probably a subject for another podcast. That is a whole podcast on its own. Yeah, yeah. there's there's some players who are not super happy with all of that sort of thing. Just... Some of those Nurgle units took some real hits, but I think they're still good. I think they still got legs. They do, just not as long of legs. No. Well, Chapter Approved had some interesting changes to a lot of armies, I think. Yeah. They did massive, actually, in my opinion. I know a lot of people complained that they wanted to see more, but I feel like there was a lot in there that has been overlooked on the short term. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some lists that I've been seeing popping up and that I've put together on my own that... I don't know if they're the best list, but they're, they're, they put some questions forward that I think a lot of armies won't be able to answer easily. Yes. I know Shay Lynn and I have both made some pretty significant tweaks to the armies we're planning on bringing to LVO. I imagine Josh has as well. Between the chapter approved and the Vigilist book, I have been idea after idea after idea racking through my brain nonstop. Yeah. Have you settled on a faction yet? Close. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, that sounds like a no to me. I've heard that kind of yes before. I know. I haven't even settled on factions either in my defense, well, Josh, I think, so... I think we came up with a pretty solid choice for you. Uh, it's it's easier than some of the other versions. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I've got something's coming to me. Uh, Grey Knights? Shot in the dark. Uh, mm, well, uh, that's the primary. It's the things I'm pairing it with that's in question, to be clear. I was saying, no, Shaylin is just going to blow everyone else away by bringing in a totally no Grey Knights army. Just like... No, she just, she just needs to break the internet, and Shaylin needs to show up with demons. <laughs> yeah. The internet will break at that exact moment. I was like, wait, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> The purists have fallen. <laughs> That's what they say, you know, the, the higher you are, the harder you fall, right? Right. Hey, I'm the good host. No, actually, actually, I'll be honest, the one that has stood out to me the most that I've been just truly falling in love with, I've been playing around with them now for a couple months, just kind of, mm-hmm. since the chapter proved, and now the Vigilist book, the Mordian, Mordian Guard, are Ooh. just yeah. mind-blowingly good to me. They they have little nuances and synergies that are just overwhelmingly good, in my opinion, for the Guard. Yeah, the improved Overwatch is pretty solid, like, anyone who plays Tau knows how good that can be, mm-hmm. and the, the, the order to snipe characters is it's huge. surprisingly terrifying. 
in a game that is dominated by characters buffing whole armies, it is yeah. really huge to be able to pick out characters with. And a lot of people think, well, it's just because it's just the rapid fire weapons. So really, it's plasma guns and las guns. That's it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you dump enough of those into characters that are only four and five wounds apiece. It only they only need to make fail a few saves, and it starts to hurt. Especially when you start combining that with uh, the their stratagem, the volley fire strat. Which is just oh yeah. Ironically, up until about three weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, I was actually completely misreading. Oh yeah, it was so much more than I thought it was previously. It's uh, specifically the one where it says whenever you roll a six plus to hit the Mordian volley fire. Specifically, it's a little different. It says for every six plus they roll to hit, they shoot their weapon again. Yeah. And it's a very minor nuance, but when you have a rapid fire to las gun. Mm-hmm. Every six plus to hits, potentially four more shots if you're in 12 inches. Yeah. That can stack up really, really quick. And now, yes, again, it's just las guns, but I don't know. You dump enough flashlights downfield, you're bound to kill something. Quantity has a quality all its own, as they say. It truly, it truly does. It truly does. Well, uh, from talking about Guard, I figure that transitions pretty well into the uh, main subject of our conversation this time around. Board control. Making space. It's super, super important. It's how a lot of armies will win or lose the game. Because if you can control where your opponent is able to go, I mean, that's, that's basically the whole game right there. Well, you have to score objectives and... If they can't get there, you win. If they can't kill the objectives, and if they can't get to kill the units they want to. Mm -hmm. That's another big part of it. It's a twofer. Yeah. Don't let them go where they want to go. That's the best way. Yes. We will probably have another episode at some point that talks about controlling your enemy's movement, um, because that is also a separate thing. But this time around, we're going to talk about three main sort of uh, broad strokes uh, of the strategy blocking, board control, and screening. They're all very similar tactics, but they're all a little bit distinct from each other, and I'd kind of like to talk about each of them individually. So let's start off the first one with blocking. And I would call blocking the... uh, Some people call it spacing or something similar, but it's using units on the board to prevent the arrival of enemy reserves. Because pretty much all reserves in the game say you can't come in within nine of an enemy unit. Yeah. You can really limit the ability of your opponent to bring in reserves just by being on the board. Yes. Uh, And this is actually really easier to do now that we're having turn two deep strikes, because now your basic units can simply just push forward on turn one to block. Yes. In a way you couldn't before with Alpha Strike, basically you had to have infiltrators, like scout-like units. Yes. Probably the most relevant part of this that I think is really easy to underestimate is just how much space a single model can cover. Because you have that nine inches in every direction off a single model, which means you can have an 18-inch gap between it and the next model in your chain, so to speak, and nothing can come down in that space. And an 18-inch radius bubble is enormously large. Venn diagrams of doom. 
So, what you'll most typically see people doing with this is, especially characters are really good for uh, blocking. They can separate away from other units while still remaining invulnerable to shooting. Uh, many of them are often support characters, so they can kind of just hang out in your backfield wherever they want and take up a whole bunch of space. Small units of cheap troops often fill the, the same kind of role, your little, like, you know, Imperial Guard squads or scouts or Tau Fire Warriors or stuff like that. Um, all these super cheap little squads that just kind of hang around somewhere and make it so the enemy can't come anywhere near you. Uh, Shaylin, you'd mentioned sort of scouts and uh, mm -hmm. things in midfield. Uh, I know that's a strategy you've used a lot. I have. Uh, one of the benefits of that, this was more relevant prior to the FAQ that says no one comes down before turn two, is having an immediate presence in midfield. You have midfield already. Yes. So they have to move, and that takes up time in the game. And that can take one to two turns for them to really close in on midfield because six inches isn't that far at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And if I've placed correctly, they can't just charge into me, uh, which we'll get into part of this episode as well, is the the relationship of that distance, that closing in the charge distance. Because nine mm -hmm. inches isn't that likely a charge. It's like 27% accuracy. Yes. The default control of midfield like that is very big. Because if you have like three or five squads of scouts out there, it, you you got it. It's yours. Now they have to take it away from you, and that can be pretty pretty big. Um, Josh, what's your experience with sort of deep strike and taking control of board against that? Do you do you use a lot of hordes to do that, or do you tend to use small units? What's your preference? Forward into the field, I normally use large bodies because it's harder to get them to tear them off of that space. Mm -hmm. I'll use large body count, whereas at the backfield, a lot of times it'll come down to just an individual character or a single vehicle or a small group or whatever. I actually had a prime example of that last year at the Michigan GT, where uh, I played against a Grey Knight player, ironically, who had a bunch of Dread Knights. <laughs> he made me go first, uh, and I'm assuming he was waiting to bring on all of his Dread Knights. He kept all but one of them in Deep Strike. I was running Gene Stewart Cult at the time, so I'm assuming he was waiting to respond for all my stuff on the table, and he's going to drop down and kill it all. And the light bulb clicked on me at that exact moment where I realized on turn two, I brought all of my gene stealers on. And when I came on, I filled the table and locked off the entire table mm -hmm. and was able even to even to make a charge into his backfield. And in so doing, we measured it out. He spent almost 20 minutes trying to find a hole that he could drop the models on. And on turn three, when he couldn't bring any model onto the table, he lost everything but Drago because Drago had a small corner that he could drop. And that was it. And he lost four Dread Knights out of that. I, it was the first time for me, and I mind you, this was last fall, so it was really early 8th edition. Mm -hmm. And so that was still a really new mechanic for me. And that was the first time I realized how big that 18-inch bubble you were just talking about is. Mm -hmm. You know, that 18 inches between two even single models, that's a lot of space. And it was very surprisingly very easy to block off a huge chunk of that table with a small model count. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I've observed, uh, and this is something I've had against counter deep strikes, is when you have that immediate presence in midfield, you've basically bought yourself another like extra 18 inches that they thrust forward between your, the brunt of your army and whatever's coming towards you. And that's part of my defense against orcs coming up is I'm still using scouts to keep that extra distance away. So it's like, yeah, you can bring the commando blob in over there. Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely, you see quite a lot of that with orcs and other horde armies. Um, mm -hmm. 
that can control so much of the board. Typically, they aren't getting quite as much as Josh had described, where they're controlling literally the entire board and there's no room for the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's often not too hard for a horde army like orcs or tyranids or guard to control so much of the middle of the field that the enemy's forced to bring all their deep strikers in on turn three, you know, to avoid them dying in very bad positions. And when you're making them place their units poorly and spend a bunch of resources to do it, because they're usually spending command points or other resources to to gain that ability, you're suddenly on a pretty good position, even if a whole bunch of your units have died in the process, because they've wasted half the game with some of what are often their most powerful units not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, which saves some of your models because you aren't getting shot at or assaulted or whacked by those big, powerful things. Absolutely. And if they have to be on the back foot noticeably and they're like 18, maybe even 24 inches away from your really important stuff, that's time they have to waste getting there, and that gives you more bullets to throw at them. Yes. In a game that's only six turns, that's a lot of time. Yes. Mm Uh, I think that's actually a pretty good place to talk about screening, our second topic. Yes. Uh, because screening is how you control the enemy's access to your units. Uh, it can come in a number of different forms. You can screen against melee units, just keep them that one inch away from something. Mm-hmm. Or you can screen against shooting units and keep them outside of, say, rapid fire range or the double penetration range for a melt-a-gun mm-hmm. or whatever else you may have. Uh, but screening is all about not letting the enemy get near your units by using other more expendable units. Mm-hmm. I imagine Josh has had quite a bit of experience with this with some of the armies he plays. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very common for hordes, especially hordes that also run some monsters or other things behind them. That is the horde strategy. In many cases. Um, you don't always. It, sometimes it's characters hiding behind them, but you can screen your characters, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the important thing about screening is that you're using the physical presence of models to stop the enemy from getting to your models. Tyranids actually have one of the single greatest tools for that aspect. Oh, yeah? Uh, very, very often overlooked. Uh, a lot of people look at Biovores as a... Oh, yes. ...direct artillery weapon. But I have used myself and also seen used. Been, I've even had it used against me in games where people will, you know, I've got a Bane Blade or giant Shadow Sword chassis, and they will, they'll move the Biovore and they'll make sure it's out of synapse range just to make sure the thing almost has a guaranteed chance of missing, just so they can drop a spore mine four inches in front of my, my Bane Blade so that my Bane Blade now can't move through that gap. Yes. And all of a sudden, they just took 10 inches of movement away from that giant tank that I need to move up that way. And that one free model that doesn't count for anything just shut down a 500-point move for me. And that's huge. That's huge. Yes. I I saw this on a table next to me. Is Someone had done that to basically absorb a Magnus Smite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways, things that check the nearest model, which screening is absolutely great for. You see people do that all the time against smites. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, stopping enemy movement is another very powerful aspect of things. Uh, we'll talk about more of that in a bit in a second, because that's sort of bleeding into board control as well as screening. Uh, but the two concepts share a lot a lot of space, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as a player who uses a lot of shooting units, uh, I actually tend to use uh, screening a lot kind of the other way uh, to control the enemy's ability to get to my shooting units. If you have those 36, 48, 72-inch guns, mm-hmm. um, and you put your line of troops right up at the front end of your deployment zone, and they put the big gun at the back, pretty good chance that most of your opponent's like medium-range weapons just won't be able to get to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have those dark reapers, they can't get shot by bolt guns if the enemy can't get within 24 inches of you. Uh, this is that, true. That works with uh, blocking as well. Is you know you put them away at the back, you put your blocking units up at the front, so the enemy can't deep strike in, and then they have to just kind of like walk into all of your guns. So yeah, controlling enemy movement is again absolutely huge. And really, that's what board control is at its sort of most fundamental level. Board control is the one that you see win and lose every game because your opponent might not bring a whole lot of deep strikers. You might not get to use blocking. And they may not have all that many smites or they may not meet make charges or whatever. So screening may not be all that critical. But controlling the board is always, always important. Every game. Mm-hmm. Since we haven't actually defined it, uh, I would call board control n- not just taking up physical space on the board, because obviously something like a unit of 40 cultists or 30 plague bears or whatever takes up a lot of real estate just by itself. Um, but it's also the space around them that they control by virtue of their presence. Um, no one wants to deep strike next to that huge unit of bloodletters or cultists or whatever other unit, and even shooting units. Like, if you drop in next to that unit of 40 cultists that are all with, you know, their crappy little las guns, you know, if they buff them up with all their stratagems and double shoot, they'll probably wipe out whatever you brought in. Um, plague bearers with all their characters hanging out near them threaten probably like 18 or 20 inches around them. Yeah. And part of assessing that threat range is how far can that unit move? Mm-hmm. How far can that unit charge? Because, you know, you bring in your nice little gray knights, it's like, well, if I don't kill this blob off fast enough, it's going to charge me and I'm going to tarp hit my army right here. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's going to kill me or not, it matters that it can stop me. Yes. Sometimes that's the threat, is the stopping power. Right, shutting down the enemy's options, preventing them from moving. Because once you're locked in, maybe you can get out of combat, but then you don't get to do anything. You don't get to charge, you don't get to shoot. So board control can come in a lot of different forms, but it's mostly about that ability to threaten a whole section of the board and say, this is mine. You're not allowed to come here until you deal with me. Uh, And that's how a lot of Chaos armies work these days, honestly. Uh, You tend to see them mostly working on controlling the board. They're not really focused on killing the enemy that much. We also kind of mentioned in passing before, objectives, obviously pretty critical when it comes to controlling the board, and this is why controlling midfield is so important, because that's where a lot of objectives tend to be. Yes, making access by controlling parts of midfield and they can't get around it. Yep. If that is your other option. So never not controlling midfield is bad. Yes. Yeah. Terrain is also worth thinking about when it comes to each of these strategies because um, there's often terrain pieces that will limit your opponent's ability to move or access your army in particular ways. So you may be able to, for example... um, 
surround both sides of a large piece of impassable terrain with your your squad so the enemy can't get by and presuming they don't have fly well they can't walk through the impassable terrain they can't walk through each of your units you've gained a whole bunch of space just by virtue of the terrain that exists on the board yes go i know lvo's coming up and they just courteously defined a bunch of the terrain stuff they do have several impassable walls that are basically going to create board control lanes like firing lanes, board control lanes, yep. mm-hmm. uh, that you can conveniently like, well, I'm just going to hide this big block of stuff right here, and you can't see it, so you can't shoot it, and it's there, so it's in the way. That's going to be a thing. It absolutely will be. Hands down. Hands down, it will. Josh, do you have anything else you want to add about board control before we kind of close this one out? No, I, I definitely like, and I, I want to emphasize, I, I definitely like how you touched base on the fact that board control just is not take, is not just taking up space. Board control is all has to boil back to intent and controlling the flow of the game. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what board control really is at the end of the day. It's defining the way in which the flow of the game will progress either for or against you. Uh, sometimes you're using it defensively, sometimes offensively, and you kind of hit on that, that it's not just, oh, I'm taking up a lot of space, because that's not really what it is. Control, by definition, board control. You're controlling the state of the game, and I think that's a huge emphasis. I want to just kind of drive that nail home, because that's a huge point. Yeah, it's it's worth thinking about the bodies that are doing the controlling, because uh, mm-hmm. that block of blood letters is going to be looked at very differently than a whole bunch of grots. Because grots don't really give you board control. Um, They do in a very vague sense, but it's not very hard for the enemy to remove those grots. And if they just send, like, five or ten space marines in, they'll take care of that problem pretty quick. Uh, Whereas those bloodletters, anything within charge range is in danger. And charge range is huge. It can be quite large. For most units, their your typical charge range is around 18 inches between move and charge. Um, and sure, you know, the outer edge of that 18-inch bubble might be a little bit safer than the inner parts, but you can't presume that they won't be able to make that 11 or 12-inch charge. It will happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've had critical 12-inch charges go through. My opponent liked yeah. it not to overwatch as a joke, and then that happened, they were like, what? Yeah. So the unit that you are controlling with is also very relevant. A knight can control a section of the board. Even though it doesn't have that large of a footprint, the area around it that it threatens... It's huge. Uh, because no one can really afford to get that close to a knight unless they have some pretty indomitable defenses. Yes. Uh, another thing is certain types of units are better screeners than others in certain circumstances. Absolutely. Um, um, know, knowing to screen, what to block and screen and control with in what circumstances is also something very important. Yes, um, because oftentimes you won't have units dedicated to these roles, especially blocking, but also screening and board control. Um, you'll have units that get used for these things because they don't have a good job in the rest of the matchup. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that you don't you know, you have that unit of scouts that are just kind of like, well, they're not really doing anything this time, so I'm going to use them to screen my other, the rest of my forces. And, and figuring out which units do that and which units are good at it and which units are worse is very important. Uh, my Tau Army uses drones for its screening purposes a lot because they have fly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
their job is to prevent me from getting charged by other units because they fly. I could use my fire warriors to screen as well, and that would stop my other units from getting charged, but that would mean that the fire warriors are locked in combat if my opponent is good, and that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to think about kind of all the, the secondary and tertiary factors that play into how units are filling these roles as well. Very true. Yes. All right. Well, I think this is a pretty good time for all of us to take a little bit of R&R &R break. We'll hit up the Quartermaster, see what he has for us this week, and then we'll catch you all on the back half of the episode. Are you looking to do conversion of your dreams, but just can't find the right bits? Probably because they don't exist? Gaiman with a top hat? Magnus with a pimp cane? Mortarian playing chess? Well, those dreams can become reality with Vritaforge, a design and 3D printing studio that can make the bits you've always wanted to happen, happen. Vritaforge can be found through Facebook, that's V-R-E-D-A, F-O-R-G-E, like Forge Worlds. Contact her, and she can design custom bits, parts, in any number you desire, from one to a million. Vreda Forge. Make all of your wargaming bits dreams come true. Hey everyone, are you looking for great competitive games of Warhammer 40k that you can watch while also donating to a charity for kids in need? If so, you should check out the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, hosted by Best in Faction Podcast and Knights at the Game Table. It will be 48 continuous hours of two separate Twitch streams of some of the best players in the country playing games against each other, including Nick Nanavati, John Lennon, Jeff Robinson, Colin Sherman, myself, and Mitch Pelham, as well as many, many more. The stream will be free for everyone to view, but we do ask that viewers who can manage will donate something to the Child's Play charity. And for those who aren't able to watch the games live, as they'll be happening starting on January 4th and continuing all the way through the 5th, everything will be archived for those of you who want to come back later and watch for a nominal fee. Beyond just the games, we'll also have interviews, chats, discussions, and just good old-fashioned storytelling, as well as a, perhaps a few games of Beer Hammer for those looking for something a little bit less serious. So please, give whatever you can, and check out and tell your friends about the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, available on both Facebook and elsewhere. And we are back to talk a little bit more about controlling a board and why that is a thing you need to do. We've touched on it a couple times already, uh, talking about objectives and all that sort of thing, but I think, I think there's a lot more to get into here. Board control strategies are not just important, I would say they're one of the most important things about winning a lot of games. It has definitely changed the value of certain unit types in 40k 
for example, cultists are better than Chaos Space Marines because they are better at board control. Yep. It's absolutely huge. And you've seen the really the rise of horde units in 8th edition uh, because they are so very good at controlling the board. But really what it, it boils down to, I think, is uh, something that Shaylin touched on a little bit earlier and, and Josh had kind of mentioned in passing as well, is that uh, space on the board is, 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 can you essentially equate to victory. Uh, because it takes time to move across distance. If your opponent has to bring their reserves in 18 inches away from you, and they're like a squad of Terminator or something, they're never going to get in. They're going to be stuck on the other side of the board for the rest of the game, because they've got to cross all that distance, and that takes time, and there's only six turns in the game. Also, the space of the board is one of the few things in 40k that's truly finite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's six foot by four foot. That's just a limited area. And yeah. while it seems big... You can really consume that if with good board control. Absolutely. And if you consume that, your opponent doesn't get any. Yep. Yes. Uh, and that's really where the control aspect comes in, is if, if you are getting to make the, the decisions and dictating this space is mine and that space is yours, even if you're not controlling the majority of the board, you can sometimes take the sections of the board that matter. Um, for example, I know we've all had that, that experience of kind of like, well, I get this ruin because it has the best position, and it's such a good castle, or has such good lines of sight, or allows you to, say, uh, hide your infantry such that a knight is not able to legally declare a charge on them or whatnot, um, that claiming certain sections of the board like that and making them yours can be a game-winning move even when you're not actually controlling the majority of the board. Yes, it's what of the board you control that matters. Mm -hmm. uh, there, There is a quality and quantity here, yes. Yes. And this is where uh, you can see a lot of value in certain different kinds of units. Um, faster units can often preemptively claim sections of the board or units that have infiltrate-style abilities, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were setting that pace, um, as we said before, controlling the time and the, the flow of the game... Um, that can really affect because there may be there's often a sort of back and forth. I take this, you take it from me, I take it back. Uh, but when you are deciding who gets to make those moves and counter moves, much as in a game of chess, um, you can often control what happens. Yes, if you're able to control if you're able to control the flow of the game, that is the biggest thing. And and I, I seem to go back to that topic a lot, but it is such a valuable thing where if you're controlling the flow, the tempo of the game, in which in choosing when is the engagement going to happen, when is the climax going to happen, it allows you to control your opponent's army more than they are, and inherently that is going to give you a massive advantage, irrelevant of how the dice are going or what lists are fighting each other or whatever. If you can control that element of the game, it is a massive advantage. Yeah, and tempo is actually a subject that I don't see discussed in 40k very often. Um, if you play Magic or other collectible card games, tempo is absolutely critical. It's one of the most fundamental concepts that you'll be introduced to. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not something that's talked about in 40k. Uh, Josh, do you want to kind of elaborate on what you would call tempo and how would you how would you describe that? Because I think it's something that is very underappreciated. Yeah, it is. It's actually hugely underappreciated. It's 
there, there's a couple different aspects of tempo. There's so first off, you say tempo. A lot of people think like you know, like the the beat, the 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 speed of flow of time. Mm-hmm. Well, that is while that is one aspect of of tempo. Um, very similar to chess, where there's there's those players in chess that if you're playing on a clock, they will allow the clock to just run time burn for the sole purpose of trying to get in their opponent's head a little bit and it does it works it works wonders and it does work in 40k as well where if i am controlling like if you're one of those players where you're just really wicked fast and you're all right let's do this 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 this, and all right my turn's on go ahead and then i go just a nice calm leisurely pace it messes with your flow it messes with your ability to all of a sudden you're like wait wait I'm, i'm i'm on this i'm on this rhythm i've got my rhythm going and you throw that rhythm off it's a bad thing and it can really mess with people's ability to focus on their tactics and their strategy but more what i refer to when i when i see when i mention tempo is you're controlling the flow of the engagement how the actual battle progresses uh, a prime example you were talking about using the board control to manipulate deep strike and so a lot of times your opponent they have this whole massive battle plan where turn 1 everything kind of moves up and gets set up turn 2 their deep strikers all come down here, here, and here. You know, after turn one, they cleared the screens to make room for these guys. Turn three, they close the pincer on this side and close these guys in on this side. And turn four, five, and six, they're kind of playing cleanup, blah, blah, blah. Well, all of a sudden, on your turn two, you push back. And your screen is not only still there, but your screen pushes deeper into them. So then on turn two, they, they go to bring their guys on wait, All of a sudden, now all their guys are pushed 18 inches back than they wanted to be. Now you just kick back the tempo. Now the game doesn't, and for them, they don't initiate their grand plan on turn three. Now it maybe doesn't happen until turn four. And all of a sudden turn five rolls around and where they were used to expecting to being here, now they're, now they're, they're on a back foot. And that, and the moment that happens, you've taken that control away from them. You've taken the control to be able to choose when the engagement happens, how the fight happens, and at what point it happens. Shaylin hit the, hit it, hit a topic really solid earlier, which she was talking about how, uh, being able to control board lanes, especially at the LVO coming up, mm-hmm. where you're gonna have literally board lanes. You're gonna have, there's, there's this movement lane here, and a solid movement lane here, and if I'm able to control those early on in the game, and to control the flow of units in and out of those lanes, you control the tempo of the game. I'm choosing when is this game gonna actually happen. Because I could say, let's wait till turn four to actually make this flow down. And that could really mess with my opponent's plan to try and engage my army. That's what I refer to when I speak of tempo, is being able to control the actual tempo of engaging the game. When does the game actually flow into, here's the preliminary, here's the climax, here's the follow-through, and this is the end result. Yeah, no, uh, this is a concept, Sean, I've spoken of a million times at tournaments, is controlling charges basically dictating yes. who charges first and when is super critical against certain matchups. And my army is very sensitive to it mm-hmm. and has some pretty good gimmicks to get around and push myself into being first or delaying to push myself second. And as a result of this, no, that kind of concept of controlling the charges, an orc army really needs to control the charges. If yes. they can't control the charges, they lose the game. Yeah. Yes. Hands down. And and I think that is kind of like th- that really hits at the fundament of what I would call tempo um, mm-hmm. is controlling the plan of the game because everyone has a plan for their game. Like Josh was saying, on turn one I do this, on turn two I do this, on turn three I do this, etc. If you can control your opponent's plan and make it so they are not able to enact it the way they want to, that's absolutely huge. 
Yes. Um, as Shaylin mentioned, that sort of move and counter move. You know, I will charge you, and then you charge the unit that I charged with, and then I charge into whatever you responded with, is very chess-like. And if you're deciding who gets to make those charges on what units, again, you're controlling your opponent's plan. Yep. You're, you're giving them the decisions to make. Um, and that's kind of how I understand tempo in a lot of cases. Um, and board control sets the tempo of the game. It says, I start with the advantage, you need to take it away from me, and then I get to respond to your attempt to take it away from me. And that's what's so critical about it, is you dictate who gets to make what decisions. And when. And when, because when those decisions happen is absolutely critical. So, uh, on the note of Deep Strikers, you get turns two and three to drop them in. Yes. Just two turns of the game. So, if you can eliminate that window, which is not hard because you have first turn to set up for it, mm -hmm. second turn to really kind of threaten it, and if you can maintain that through turn three, you've basically destroyed a Deep Strikers army. Yes. And even if you don't literally destroy them like Josh did with the, the Dread Knights, give them nowhere to come in, as we said earlier, if we can, if you can make them deep strike in a position that is so far away from everything that matters on the board... They might as well be dead. Yeah. Who cares? It's uh, space, is, space is time, and time is victory. You only have so many turns to play the game. Um, if you are 24 inches away from an objective and you move 4 inches per turn, it's over. You're not getting there. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, uh, a, a topic that was touched on uh, by Don Hoosen after BAO when he was talking about his Black Lord Terminators that move so slow, he mm. has to charge them to ramp up their speed, to ramp up their tempo to get them to where they need to be. Yes. Uh, was things he was talking about regularly. So this is also a, a concept I thought I'd bring up is you can change the tempo with some surprisingly interesting little tricks like that. Yes. Uh, we, we may have to have a whole other episode on tempo, because I think this is a subject that needs to be discussed in more detail, and, and like we said earlier, a subject that a lot of people are not familiar with in this game. Mm -hmm. It's a huge topic, it really is. But let's, let's get back to our main topic at hand here. Okay. Um, okay, so what armies need to worry about board control? Uh, what armies do you think it's most important for? Eldar. Eldar. Yes, uh, because of the fact that Eldar did, do not have board control like a lot of the other armies can represent, specifically like Chaos, Orcs, Tyranids, Imperium, mm -hmm. all of them can represent large amounts of board control. And especially with the change to the fly rule, it could potentially leave Eldar in a bad position if they allow their opponent to get good board control against them. Okay. That I think that's a pretty reasonable thing. Is if you can't, you know, if those shining spears can't charge what you need to, then they're not doing their job. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are other armies that struggle a lot with board control? The my my go-to after that is knights, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Specifically, the pure knight builds. The pure knight builds out there, they they struggle so heavy with board control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the enemy can just sort of throw bodies into them and not let them ever get where they need to be. Exactly. Uh, I would say from personal experience that gunline armies often struggle with board control. Tau and Imperial Guard, for example. Lack of mobility, yeah. The, the lack of mobility and also the unwillingness to sort of confront the enemy army head-to-head. -head. Whereas, like, you know, orcs could just sort of, like, walk over a handful of space marines or a knight or something like that and not really care. 
Uh, a Tau army just can't afford to close the distance, which means they are often giving up board control in those early turns of the game. They, they really do, and while they do have some pushback units, uh, like stealth suits, the stealth suits out in the open are just kind of dead. Yeah. Let's just, um, let's just be honest about that. Cell suits are super dead if you do that yeah. to them. <laughs> okay, uh, so what about blocking? What armies are going to struggle the most with blocking as a strategy? Mm. Grey Knights struggle. In a pure Grey Knight build, there's like nothing to block with besides your the units that you care about. <laughs> Elite armies, uh, basically. Sure, but struggling, performing blocking, I was also thinking struggling against enemy blocking units. Yes. The uh, Grey Knights do that too? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you, whenever you, when you have to start sacrificing uh, elite units to start clearing chaff, that's a that's a bad trade. It's no bueno. Um, sometimes you don't get a choice if you're me. Tyranids, actually. Tyranids struggle pretty hard against blocking armies, mm-hmm. just because most Tyranid armies, uh, Tyranids and Gene Circle, they're heavily skewed towards combat style lists. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got a few, sh- you know, a couple shooty units in the list, but most of the time it's, you know, they're relying on their gene stealers or their, uh, the cult or the, or the aberrants to, to get into combat and do a lot of the damage. And if they're, and if their opponent utilizes blocking properly, it makes it very difficult. Do you mean, do you mean screening rather than blocking there or? Oh yeah, that's more screening for me. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I apologize. Mis- complete misuse on that one. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that's physically interposing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would definitely say that Tyranids um, and Gene Stealer Cult struggle. I would say Gene Stealer Cult actually struggle with uh, blocking as well, um, because even if they have the ability to move in, they're still very reliant on their reserves. Yes. Uh, but Tyranids, Orcs, Demons. I would say they all have. Uh, a lot of problems with screening, because if you can screen them out, they just don't get to play the game. Yeah, Thousand Suns. That army is all banking on smites and smite nearest unit. If you're like, yes. I'm smiting something garbage every turn, Yes, you uh, have won that game. If if they are spending the whole game smiting grots, it's over. Yeah. They're not going to win. You've already won. You've already won. Okay, so, well, uh, Josh, since you actually play a bunch of the armies we just talked about, do you want to talk a little bit about how you counter each of these three strategies? Because I think there are a lot of people who are going to be asking themselves the question, okay, if this makes my army lose, what do I do about it? So one of the one of the first ones, one of the, the single first ones, specifically against blocking, and, I, and I'm, when I say blocking, I'm talking about the reserve play. Yes. Where, you know, I have... I have a good half my army that is normally designed to deep strike into the table. Um, my first advice and the first thing that I will normally go to when I'm in a situation where I'm playing against an army that is really, really good board control, and I'm worried about whether I'm going to get to utilize that this this reserve aspect, this aspect of my army that is a key linchpin to my army, the first thing I go to is don't deep strike them. Mm. A lot of people don't realize quite often that is a genuine, solid option and prime example prime example uh we were talking earlier about the the demon plague bearer screens that they have out there where you can just shove a 30-man plague bearer unit into this quadrant of the table to just clog it up the one thing a lot of people don't realize is in those lists they don't tend they don't have a tendency to have a crap load of shooting in those lists right normally they're kind of limited on shooting so having my units more selectively on my side of the table and allowing the movement phase to give me more control in that movement phase 
will be a direction I have a tendency to lean because yeah. those armies are normally fairly what I call core armies, meaning they, they have to stay around a core. And so I'll try and use that quite often against those. The, so that, that's, that would be my first go-to. If you're playing against a, a hard board control list, blocking a list that's going to try and block into your reserve, consider not deep striking. That, that's a huge one. Right. Well, because you don't have to, and the reason you typically deep strike is because you don't want to get shot before you get into melee combat. Exactly. If they don't have any shooting, you don't need to deep strike. Don't worry about it. But so many people get set on that autopilot. They're like, oh, I, I deep strike these guys. And they're so often, no, you actually don't want to, especially with the lack of being able to come in turn one. Yes. Quite often, I'd rather just have them on the damn table and not have to worry about that to begin with. As I say, that's something Shaylin and I have discussed a lot with her army, is when you do and don't deep strike certain portions of it. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I think you've gotten pretty good at that as of late, actually, because you've, you've done a lot more sort of consideration of, like, does this unit need to come in, or can I hold them back? Or do I need to start them out? Yeah, and, and sometimes it's like, I, I still keep the interceptors in my back pocket, because they can still do a turn one whack, and sometimes like, well, they come in turn one and they blow up the grot screen. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're dead. Your lootas are dead next turn. Yes. Yeah, your screen's dead, exactly. You got one more turn of whatever your gimmick is. Let's let's have uh, Shaylin talk a little bit about dealing with screens, because Heck yeah. she I... absolutely has dealt with this issue before. What are your yes. strategies for, for dealing with screening units? So one of the one of the most interesting ways to deal with screening units is psychically. The, their whole point of a screening unit is they take up, they have bodies, so they need to consume a certain weight of shots. Mortal wounds are reliable damage, and Grey Knights don't have, don't do a lot of it usually, but it's still something that adds up fairly quickly over the course of six Grey Knight units, because mm -hmm. um, six mortal wounds is still six mortal wounds. So that is a consideration I personally take when I look at the screen. Is like, okay, what type of screen is it? How close do I want to be to it? And sometimes it's like, yeah, I deep strike kind of far away, not even in rapid fire distance, because I need to shoot it two turns. And I know I need to shoot it two turns. Mm -hmm. a, a way I look at screens is, do I want to assault the screen is the first question I have. Yes. Because uh -huh. that determines how close I'm going to get to that screen. Right. There Gene Steelers are... is a screen It's like, I am either hogging in with the plan to shoot it all off, or shoot it down to, like, two of them, because two of them is fine. <laughs> I'm going to like to not get close. And that, that plays into some of the aspects of board control as well, but often units do more than one of these things at once. Exactly. Um, so it's more of, what is the threat level of this screen? Mm -hmm. um, did they screen lesser in a certain place? Because I'm basically going to build my castle in midfield somewhere. I get to choose where that castle is. So it's either I can whack into a lot of screen and spend time whacking through a screen, but if they've left a weaker side, but they left a knight there, that's kind of like, okay, well, can right. I deal with that? The answer is sometimes yes. Yeah, sometimes I do go through Imperial Knights to get their squishy stuff. And uh, to be clear, when Shaylin says castle, she means when, when you when you bring in all of your, your deep strike reserves, you often bring them in in a single place to concentrate your force. Uh, yeah. Because you want as much of your army concentrated against as little as the enemy army as possible. That uh, is how deep strike tactics work. Is basically generally. you spearhead a little point and you dive in. Yes. So I, I look at it as taking a scalpel and jabbing it into the side of the enemy's line, and hopefully I hit a seam and it all falls apart. Yes, uh, and I think that's a, a very relevant thing for screens. Um, your advantage 
as the player who is facing the screen is you get to choose where that battle happens. Mm -hmm. Um, They can dictate the terms of the battle by their placement of the screen, but you get the final decision in where that fight will happen. So if they have made a mistake in their screens, left even a very small gap, or put the screen a little bit too close to their other units or whatever else, um, you can take advantage of that. And a good player might not, but even good players make mistakes. Yes. Uh, I have seen I have seen many opponent like uh Sean has learned about the Saffrocrystal screen up. He uses like one of his little characters just to push the bubble out a little further because mm-hmm. his screen's weaker in a spot. He'd rather just have let more distance there. Yes. Because even taking rapid fire weapons to like outside of their rapid fire range is an immediate half decrease in damage he takes. Yep. Yeah. Josh, how would you, how do you deal with board control? Because this is kind of the big one that we spent the most time talking about. If your opponent is using that block of cultists or plague bearers or gene stealers or whatever to control a section of the board, how do you deal with that? If your opponent has, uh, you know, the way I, I look at that question is, if my opponent has an inherently better control of the board than I do, they have a they have a list that is designed for board control. They're going to maintain board control better than I can. My my first instinct at that point is to go to how can I section off part of the board and fight on a smaller scale? Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Win the battle piecemeal, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's normally when I'm, when I'm facing a a force that is obviously better at at this thing that I am, then I take that thing away from them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I will then fight them. So instead of a six by four table, I'm going to fight them on a four by two table. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'm going to push into, okay, well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to fight on this four by two. And if they're doing what they're supposed to do in that they're controlling a vast swath of the table, then at that point, that's telling me that I've probably just taken a good 40% of their army out of the fight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I am now fighting my 2000 points against whatever they have in this section of the table I'm engaging and I normally will try and use that if you hit hard enough and do it right early enough, that can give you enough of an advantage to where by the end of the game, you're fighting for partially over half the table, and they're fighting for just under half the table. And if you play your cards right, it's the half that matters. Because again, I don't need all the objectives, I just need more than you. Yep. Exactly. That's, that's a very classic anti-orc strategy from many editions right there. Oh yeah, that's old school. <laughs> You put all your army up against a third of their army, you kill that one third, and then they, you know, bring in the guys who are in the middle, and then you kill that third, and then all those poor stragglers in the end come in you and you kill them as well. Yep, that that's another tempo trick. Yes. I have, act- one of the things I do deep strike is occasionally I do deep strike piecemeal, because what I do is I drag, as I use it to force my opponent to drag their force somewhere to create an opening where I can fissure in the majority of my deep strike because most people go, Oh wait, I have to go deal with that problem. Well, guess what? Most of the hammer is still in reserve. Yes. Uh, All these strategies tend to degrade over the course of the game as you lose models. You'll have control of less of the board. You'll be able to block off less of the board. You'll have fewer models to screen with. Um, so if you can delay some of your your own strategies until later on in the game when you have degraded the enemy army, and mm-hmm. presuming that you have enough on the board to do that, then you may be able to enact your plan on a later turn. Uh, delay it rather than sort of divert it entirely. 
Yes, and uh, that's something I've been experimenting with with the new sisters. Is they're pretty good at forcing delays. Oh yeah, it's true. Because sisters are tough. They basically have their own set of special strategy command pool that are acts of faith. Yes. So and they have movement acts and resurrection acts and shooting acts. Sisters is solid. Yes. So one of the things they can do is manipulate tempo because they have all these extra tricks. Mm-hmm. All right. Do either of you have any kind of last words you want to throw in on the subject of board control screening and blocking? Uh, my first bit is if you're not someone who thinks about the game this way, start looking at your practice games and games you have done in this context. And if you don't have one, get a little nine-inch movement stick to sort of measure out that distance. It is super, super handy. Uh, we sell them through Vreda Forge, who mm-hmm. we can, we'll have the link for that in this episode. Uh, other companies produce them as well. You can also just have a nine-inch stick of sprue if you're completely broke and don't want to pay out for it. But knowing that distance and that nine-inch distance and how big it is is very important, and you should get used to measuring that. Yes. What was your second point, Shailene? Did you have... Well, A, just building measuring sticks around threat ranges. Like, uh, I put two 9-inch sticks together to get that 18 inches right. for, to compensate for the moving and the charge. It's like, okay, oh, sure. how far can this unit go? Especially in soft games, as we talk about, is these are things you need to step up your soft game with is you start measuring those distances, learning them, understanding them. Because when you have a visual sense of them, you don't necessarily have to measure them, but you just know, like, okay, I know how far away physically I have to be now. Mm-hmm. Josh, do you have any last comments you want to throw in here? I think we got this one pretty well solidly done. All right. Well, hopefully all the listeners feel the same way as well. I do think we covered some pretty important subjects here, and I think we got some subjects that we're going to have to discuss in future weeks, because there's some things we only glanced over that deserve at least a full episode on their own. Yeah, I think I think you guys are going to start seeing uh, the word tempo come out a lot more. I've definitely heard it here and there, but I think it's a concept that is growing for a lot of people. So, for all of you out there in listener land, uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, if you have comments, questions, critiques, want help with a list or something else, uh, we have an email, inthefinesthour at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, In the Finest Hour. Uh, and starting just recently, we now have a Patreon, which for $5 a month donation, you can sign up for both a private Facebook page where all of us are present, as well as a Discord server that you'll be automatically added to. Mm-hmm. And if you have a burning question that you absolutely need to answer and you really want to talk to one of us personally, That'll get you personal access to all three members of the crew here, as well as everyone else who's signed up, which we're we're starting to get a pretty decent little group of folks. But we're we're trying to put together a nice little community that can help people out with questions and lists and strategy and all that sort of thing. Josh, what do you got to plug for us this time? Well, actually, we just got done uh, launching uh, on this new year. We're going to be launching a oh yes a list building kind of a list tech service similar to what uh, the Brown Magic released last year. We're kind of taking doing our own take on it, where it's going to have various tiers of uh, services offered, from building a list to building a list, and the list comes with the player's guide to the list comes with the player's guide and a three-hour video battle report of the list being played and uh, in a certain mission format that would be tailored to the players. And uh, all the way up to having models purchased and assembled and built 
for the list. So uh, various tiers of that being available here soon. And we'll probably have a link for it at some point as well uh, on the Facebook. Okay. Do you have any events you're going to upcoming soon? I am, actually. Very, very soon. January 5th, uh, the Glass City GT in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, yeah, right around the corner here. Yeah. It is. It's huge. It's a huge event. As When I say huge, it's not a number of attendants. Normally only about 70, 80 people. It's pretty big. But easily half that number is top-end players in the country. Uh, you get Beast Coast out there, Canhammer, the Kamikazes out of Chicago. You get some of the Warhogs out of the Midwest. Yeah. Where Matt Root's team, I believe, is part of. A lot of really good players. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of strong players. I mean, Alan Bajamovic, Brad Chester, Nick Donovani. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had all those names vying at the top of the last city for three, the last three years. It's it's a really big event in that the it's a good one to watch. Really, it is. Leading so close to LVO, it's a great one to see where the meta is going. And so even if you're not, it's not one you'd want to attend, keep an eye on BCP, Best Coast Pairing. And uh, get a look at some of those lists that come out of there, because that might really help people prep for LVO. Do you know if they're doing any live coverage of it? They uh, they did last year. I have not heard that they confirmed a stream for this year. I don't know yet. Okay. If they do, I'll definitely let you guys know. Maybe we can throw it up on our Facebook group. I definitely think we'll put a, a link to that, because that's well worth people's time. Perfect. Yes. Shaylin and I are also going to an event. Uh, we linked it through our page a little while ago. It's not quite as uh, big a hitter as the Glass GT. It want... features Pacific Northwesters, though. The the top of the Pacific Northwest is yeah. kind of showing up. Uh, I'll be there. Colin Sherman will as well. I know we have some of the other uh, folks from around the area. Chuck, Mason, a couple of the other guys from the, the Seattle area. That'll be the 19th of January, so got a few weeks coming up to build your list wrong and make some poor choices there before you <laughs> abandon it right before LVO. Um, I haven't really decided what I'm bringing to that. Uh, I got a couple different It's choices. Tau. It might not be. I have a very <laughs> stupid list that I have to play, and um, I might have purchased a Magnus and Mortarian recently. Oh dear. I have I have an idea that we think it might get a little bit of screen time just to see whether it works. I can't wait to see this. The last time he had an idea, he built an assassin's list. Uh, yep. That list got worse when they lowered the points on assassins, sadly. <laughs> it's a strange world we live in. Other than that, do any of you have any events we're going to prior to the LVO? For me, that's my last hurrah. Yeah. I've got I've got one more going on. It's going to be an ETC prep uh, primer up in Sudbury, Ontario. I think it's the twelfth week, the weekend of the twelfth of January, uh, and it's it's going to be big in that the entire Canadian ETC team will be there, as well as from what I understand, a good chunk of the pr- pr- prospective American ETC team might be there as well. So uh, definitely be a good one to watch to see where the meta is going to be because, again, only less than a month out from LVO, so there's going to be a lot of meta shift coming out of an event that big. Hmm. I'd also like to thank all of our sponsors for this week. We have Dank Muse providing us with all of our music. Uh, you can check him out on SoundCloud. Yep, and we have Rylan Woodrow, our wonderful in-house artist who does our banner work and icon work. Yep. 
Some gorgeous stuff there. He does lots of other 40K stuff as well. He is not just our artist, but also a fan of the community. So I would heavily recommend you go check him out. Some really neat Blanchian stuff right there. So I think that wraps us up for the week. Thank you all for listening. And next week we will be talking about saturation, threats, and targets. And we may also have a special feature for you. So stay tuned and have yourself a wonderful holiday. This episode was recorded by the Lady of Titan while petting dry rinks. It was later edited by her hand after the trip to the apothecary.